Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Dan Larison, as we try to find some enlightened distinction between the hysteria and threat inflation over a potential conflict at the moment in Eastern Europe and sound analysis of the very real dynamics undergirding the tensions in the world today. We will be joined in our second half by Cato Institute Senior Fellow and prolific author, Ted Galen Carpenter. But first, let's talk about Afghanistan. Last week, the Biden administration announced that it finally made a decision regarding the $7.1 billion in Afghan central bank funds that it had frozen since the Taliban had taken over the government in Afghanistan in late August. Some $3.5 billion of those funds will be held in a trust to be doled out for much-needed humanitarian aid, but the other half would be used to pay off a settlement won by a group of 9-11 families who had sued al-Qaeda and those who harbored them, including the Taliban in Afghanistan, for the 2001 terror attacks in New York and Washington. These families won their case in 2012, but until now, there was no one to demand the settlement from. As lawyers for the families have begun to demand compensation from the frozen funds, Biden decided to split the baby. But this has caused an uproar as it is seen as punishing the Afghan people who had nothing to do with the events 20 years ago, but are suffering from a collapse in their economic and healthcare systems and need that liquidity, all of it, channeled back into the banks, into their banks. Dan, having $3.5 billion placed in a trust, trust for aid sounds good, but that's not what the Afghan people need right now, is it? Uh, well, it, it, humanitarian aid isn't adequate for a, an economic collapse of this magnitude. Right. And so even if the aid uh, does actually get distributed fairly quickly, and it's doubtful that that's going to happen, uh, it's still not going to be enough to meet the needs of a country of uh, almost, I think, uh, 35 to 40 million people. Uh, it's, it's a very large country that has significant economic and humanitarian needs, and this is simply not going to be sufficient. Uh, what, what I think the, the Biden administration has done, uh, it really doesn't make any sense uh, on, on either the humanitarian front uh, or the, the legal front. I don't think they have any actual legal right to seize or use the assets in the way that they're doing. Uh, this money is the money of the people of Afghanistan. Uh, it, it belonged to the Afghan government that has since collapsed. Uh, and it certainly doesn't belong to the Taliban. So how can there be judgments uh, against the Taliban that are in any way touching this money? Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so what we, what we should have seen or what I would have liked to have seen from the Biden administration was an acknowledgement that these assets belong to the people of Afghanistan. They should be used for their benefit and should therefore be returned to their central bank so that the central bank can get the economy up and running again. Uh, because what we've seen in Afghanistan is not only the cutoff of international aid, uh, most of it, uh, but also the imposition of sanctions because of the Taliban takeover and uh, the collapse of liquidity because these assets are frozen. And so the, the very least we could have done would be to give them their own money back. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're not really doing that. We're At best, we're doling it out slowly uh, through a process that hasn't even been fully set up yet. And according to reporting, won't be set up for months. Uh, so by the time that it does finally get set up, who knows how many people will have already starved uh, and, and gone into deep poverty because of this delay. 
um, it's it's really indefensible decision. Uh, I, I think pretty much everyone who's commented on it has deplored it in one way or another. Um, there, there was a piece uh, by H.A. Hellyer, I think, in the Washington Post, calling it unconscionable. Uh, your own uh, Adam uh, Weinstein from uh, Quincy Institute uh, has been critic, very critical of it as well. Uh, in fact, he said in a very good Twitter thread the other day, uh, using a country's foreign reserves to compensate 9-11 victims may make sense in the windowless confines of a courtroom, but defies basic logic. To the world, this looks like nothing short of theft, not compromise or sound legal reasoning. And I think that's that's the way that everybody sees it, uh, because that's what it is. It's it's yeah. essentially massive theft uh, of other people's money by the government, which we're then using, which our government is then using uh, for American citizens. It's... Uh, it's it's the kind of plunder that people used to criticize Trump for wanting to do, um, and and unfortunately, it's what Biden has chosen to do. Uh, it's, it's a it's a shame, right? And it, let's take a look at the the core case here. Uh, we are basically saying, or the Biden administration is is saying, by allowing three point five billion of these funds to go to the nine eleven families in a settlement that Afghanistan was responsible for 9-11. Afghanistan was not responsible for 9-11. Al-Qaeda was responsible, and the Taliban, which is an insurgency in in a civil war in Afghanistan at the time, was not the government of Afghanistan, was harboring those fighters, those planners, plotters, whatever you want to call them. And so you're absolutely right. This is a, a heist in a sense, of Af- the Afghans' money. But I feel like they're, you know, my first instinct when I heard about this story, and, you know, I, I mentioned this to colleagues, was, wow, I don't want to be seen as um, not being sympathetic to the 9-11 families uh, because they, you know, they have gone through uh, the, these um, the, the court proceedings. Um, they're looking for compensation uh, for these horrific attacks. Um, but this, is, this isn't the pot of money that they should be getting it from. I don't know how they're ever going to, to, to get the money. Uh, the Taliban certainly doesn't have the money and the Taliban can't be held to, to giving them any money. We, we're not even talking to them right now. Um, so that that seems to be the shame here is that we went the easy route and went after existing funds that do not belong to the Taliban. And, um, you know, honestly, what, what, what's ironic here is that there is a there there is another group of 9-11 families who are trying to sue Saudi Arabia over the 9-11 attacks because they believe they have the evidence to prove that the Saudi government was in some way and at some degree involved, knowledgeable, even had funded members of this Al-Qaeda group uh, of hijackers. And that case is ongoing, but because Saudi Arabia has had uh, an army of lobbyists in Washington fighting this process tooth and nail at every step of the way, it's been a very long, drawn-out drama. Um, but they're still fighting for it. The, the funny thing was this court had come to this uh, settlement with um, or had agreed to the settlement with these other 9-11 families in this case 
in 2012 relatively easy, <laughs> easily. Uh, whereas the Saudi uh, case is, is, is not easy. Um, but I, I personally, I think that they are more responsible uh, the Saudi government, or at least uh, princes and elements of the government, are more responsible uh, for 9-11 than you could even attach responsibility for uh, with the Afghans. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and so what we have is a case of, of punishing innocent people for the crimes of others, and, and not just punishing them a, a little bit, but, but taking crucially needed money out of their hands or, or, or keeping it out of their hands at a time when they need it most desperately. Uh, the Afghanistan economy is in collapse. It is, it is imploding. Uh, and, and we're going, and we're already seeing uh, widespread malnutrition and, and food insecurity. Uh, we'll, we'll be seeing mass starvation and famine uh, in the coming year. And that's, that's something that could be could still be averted. Uh, I mean, in some cases, it's it's too late. But for for a lot of these people, there is still time to to avert the worst case scenario. And I fear that because I, I don't know if it's a political fear or if it's it's simply a lack of concern on the part of our government uh, about what's happening in the the aftermath of the withdrawal. Uh, there, there's there's simply no urgency to try to address the humanitarian crisis with. The resources that it requires, and so it's uh, it's really shocking to see how uh, how much almost everybody in Washington has, has effectively written off this country that yeah. until just a few months ago people claimed was so crucially important was so valuable to the United States, uh, and of course you know as, as supporters of withdrawal, uh, I, I acknowledge I, I didn't think that Afghanistan was that important to the United States, but. That, that doesn't give us the right or the, uh, the excuse to deprive them of resources that they need to live. And so it, from, from the outside of the U.S., I think what this looks like is uh, kind of a, an extreme case of, of being sore losers, where we, we simply penalize a country uh, where we don't get our way, where we lose a war. And I, I think that's going to be hugely damaging to our reputation in the world, uh, and it and it is going to end up coming back to haunt us somewhere down the line, uh, as we are held responsible for inflicting this terrible crisis on uh, tens of millions of people. I think what we're seeing is big politics in action, and the Biden administration is reeling from its inability to withdraw from Afghanistan effectively and without drama. So we know that the Biden administration has taken a lot of heat for that withdrawal and it has created a more political acrimony against him. And he's looking at the 2022 midterm elections and the 2024 presidential elections. And he is trying to mop up uh, what has become a political liability for him. I'm sorry about that. He could have done better. I mean, we needed to withdraw from that country. And personally, I'm kind of disgusted with the way it all happened. And I'm doubly disgusted that he is turning away from Afghanistan and um, doing his duty or, you know, for it, which is, you know, helping the Afghan people in the aftermath, you know, get back on their feet because he's worried about the political implications. That's clear to me what's going on here because we have spent the last several months 
um, in a limbo in which we're not talking to the Taliban. We don't have an embassy there. We haven't really led any effort to open up aid, uh, to help open up their economy. And when we finally do act, it is this unbelievably poor decision to put half of the money of their own money into a settlement for 9-11 families and the other half into a trust when we don't even know if that money will actually get to the people who need it because we haven't made the diplomatic effort to open up channels with the Taliban um, to ensure that aid would get through to those people effectively. I find this very half-assed, but I, I do think it is all uh, has, has been calibrated to today's politics. And like I said, I'm, I'm sorry that Biden couldn't withdraw better. Um, I'm sorry that he faces a political backlash, but that's the reality. But we can't, we can't force the, the, the Afghan people to suffer for President Biden or his administration's mistakes. Right. Well, and, in, and in general, we, we don't want to have important foreign policy decisions like this made with, with primarily with electoral or, or domestic political considerations in mind. Uh, there, and indeed, Biden's decision to withdraw was absolutely the correct one. Right. And it, and it, was, in, it was absolutely in the best thing for the United States. Uh, it was in our national interest to finally wrap up our involvement in that conflict. Uh, and, and that was the kind of political courage that we saw that Biden was capable of, uh, at least in one instance. Uh, but what we've seen in many other cases, including this one, where it, it simply seems to have deserted him, uh, when he, he should know that, he, yes, he's going to get bashed by Republicans uh, for anything that goes wrong. He's going to be attacked by hawks for supposed weakness, no matter what he does. So he ought to do the things that actually make the most sense and have the best chance of, of succeeding uh, rather than trying to finagle these uh, halfway solutions that are going to satisfy absolutely nobody. And, and as we've seen from the backlash against this decision, it has satisfied absolutely nobody. Nobody is standing up and defending this decision. Uh, either they're, they're staying quiet or they are denouncing it. Uh, and, that, and that seems to be true across the spectrum. It's not, uh, it's not simply a case of people who are always against Biden saying it. It's, it's all over the place. And so it's, uh, it, it's one of the more uh, unbelievable decisions that Biden has made uh, as president. And, and I, I think he's, he's really going to come to regret it. It's going to end up becoming more of a liability than any hawkish criticism ever could have been. have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Ted Galen Carpenter to our show. Ted is a senior fellow in defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and the author of 12 books and more than 850 articles on international issues and foreign policy and the military. His books include The Captive Press, Foreign Policy Crises, and the First Amendment, the Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, and Gullible Superpower, U.S. Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements. 
He received his PhD in U.S. diplomatic history from the University of Texas in 1980 and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing editor at the Foreign at the National Interests and, and the American Conservative. And he's also written quite extensively for me at Responsible Statecraft. So welcome, Ted. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. So we have a lot to talk about today because I know you've been writing quite uh, prolifically about the issues of the day, which right now is Ukraine and Russia and NATO expansion and all of the the tensions that have been built up over the years and sort of led us to this point. And, you know, your great book, Gullible Superpower, addresses a lot of the issues in terms of the culture, the foreign foreign policy culture in America that has arisen over the Cold War period and has led us to a situation where we're constantly looking, or a big hammer with, you know, looking for nails. And, and you said um, pretty, you know, succinctly uh, that the United States going abroad in search of monsters is a problem that has been building for decades, but it has grown worse since the 1980s. And I know this is kind of a broad question, but I was wondering, you know, looking at the headlines today, are we seeing an apex of, of that spirit that you wrote about in Gullible Superpower in 2019, that the United States, you know, even having shut down or helped to dismantle the Soviet Union, um, has gone after Islamic extremism in the global war on terror? Is it now in search of a new monster to destroy? I'm afraid it is, and Russia appears to be that designated monster. Um, I warned about NATO expansion when it was first discussed in the mid-1990s, that this was a very bad idea, that this would ultimately poison relations with, at that time, a newly democratic Russia. And with the subsequent stages of expansion that moved the alliance ever closer to the Russian border, matters have grown worse. Uh, it's not like Russian leaders haven't warned us about this. Uh, Vladimir Putin, in his uh, speech to the Munich Security Conference in 2007, warned about the uh, unfriendly nature of NATO's move to the east and made it very clear that this process needed to come to an end. Instead, uh, the United States escalated talked about bringing Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. And Ukraine, I think, really is a core security interest of Russia. The Russian government has drawn a bright red line saying if NATO crosses that, tries to make Ukraine a member or tries to make Ukraine a, a staging area for NATO military power, regardless of whether Ukraine becomes a formal member of the alliance or not, that crosses that red line, and then we have a major crisis. That's what we're experiencing right now. Do you, I mean, one of the arguments that I'm hearing from the hawks, both on the left and the right, is that if you are in support of Ukraine's sovereignty, of Ukrainian freedom and democracy, then you must be in support for making a bold, strong even militarized stand against Russia. 
So everything about this is couched in a either you're for freedom or against it. Are you surprised that the the at least the media narrative and the politicians narrative has coalesced around that trope? Nothing about the media surprises me much anymore. Um, the news media in the United States have a tendency to portray very complex foreign policy issues in the most melodramatic terms. There's always a designated villain. There's always a designated victim, whichever party the United States is favoring in any given conflict. And it's always uh, an existential threat to uh, freedom and democracy and American security that has to be thwarted. We're just seeing the, uh, the latest round of that kind of rhetoric in the media and it's extraordinarily unhelpful. Uh, this time, though, it uh, there are signs that the American people are not buying the narrative, as they did in the lead up, for example, to the war in Iraq, uh, when they pretty well swallowed all the propaganda about Saddam Hussein's alleged weapons of mass destruction. This time, people seem to be a bit more skeptical. Only a small minority for example, favor the U.S. using military force to defend Ukraine. And there's even an unwillingness to get involved with uh, imposing economic sanctions, I guess, wondering where that might lead over the long term. What about the idea of arming the Ukrainians? That seems to be the fallback for a lot of these hawks who who like to say, hey, we're not advocating. No one's advocating actually going to war against Russia over Ukraine, we're just advocating giving the Ukrainians assistance, uh, like arms and other other supports. Personally, I think that could lead to bad places, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Well, the history of U.S. arms aid clients uh, is not a happy one to begin with. And in this case, I think it would be especially dangerous. There's no way that Russian leaders would regard that kind of move as anything other than deeply threatening to core Russian security interests. Uh, Moscow has made it very clear that they're not, Russia will not allow Ukraine to become a NATO puppet. And if we get involved in an Afghanistan style uh, support of rebels, as we did, for example, in the 1980s in that country, it's going to turn out very badly. If Russian troops, possibly Russian civilians, start getting killed with U.S. arms supplied to insurgents, that's not going to turn out well at all. We will see the crisis atmosphere intensify greatly. I did, yeah. Thank, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I, I'm afraid that that's, uh, that is a real danger of uh, throwing more weapons at the situation. Uh, and, and we've, I know you've been warring against arming Ukraine for many years, uh, as have we, uh, fearing uh, that it could end up escalating the situation. Uh, and of course, we've, we've also been warning about NATO expansion, as you said. Uh, whether or not NATO formally renounces further expansion of the alliance, uh, I, I think the current crisis makes pretty clear that the U.S. and its allies are not ever actually going to fight for Ukraine, and that if we were to, going to try, we would be outgunned on the ground, right? And so I think... Uh, if there's anything we've learned from the crisis, it's that. Uh, do you think, as a result of this, that further NATO expansion is effectively dead 
even if they don't say so officially? Two things. One, I hope that you're right, that the West has decided it will not use military force to defend Ukraine, knowing that that could create, quite literally, a war with nuclear implications uh, with Russia. But countries have stumbled into wars that they really didn't intend to start. And I worry about the war lobby in the United States and some other NATO countries demanding that we come to the aid of wonderful democratic Ukraine against the, uh, the existential bully, Vladimir Putin. That kind of pressure can cause uh, political leadership to take steps that uh, lead to um, ultimately a military confrontation, even though that's not their plan. So I, I hope that it doesn't. Um, on the other hand, we have even aside from the issue of NATO membership, and I think if France and Germany stand firm against membership for Ukraine, which they've done ever since George W. Bush first pushed for that back in 2008, if they stand firm, there will be no membership invitation extended to Kiev. However, the United States is doing an end run around that and has been doing it for several years by providing weapons and training to the Ukrainian military, conducting joint military exercises in many ways, treating Ukraine as a NATO member in all but, uh, but name. And that kind of policy could intensify going forward. We even have a process of what I call arms laundering, where the United States does not transfer certain weapon systems directly to Ukraine, but it strongly encourages certain other NATO members to provide that kind of aid. I believe uh, one of the Baltic Republics just uh, made a transfer of Stinger anti-aircraft missiles uh -huh. to Ukraine. So Washington's fingerprints are not necessarily on that, but the process is the same. The Ukrainian military is getting fairly sophisticated U.S. weaponry indirectly. Right. And, and, and that's been going on now for uh, six, seven years uh, since I think the, the Trump administration first started sending uh, weapons to Ukraine. Um, well, one of, the, one of the hopeful things that we've seen in the last few days is that there, there may be some signs of de-escalation. There may be uh, some uh, reduction of tensions uh, as some Russian troops may be moving away from the border uh, there, there is some talk uh, of continuing diplomacy between Russia and the West. Uh, if there is de-escalation in the immediate crisis, uh, what would you like to see change in the U.S. approach to Russia to avoid future crises uh, like this one? I think the uh, position that Moscow took on wanting security guarantees is something that the U.S. Uh, should respond to positively. Uh, this is something that um, is not unreasonable and simply giving Russia an assurance Ukraine will not become a NATO member. Uh, weapon sales are going to be scaled back. Uh, we're not going to have NATO military units deployed in Ukraine or elsewhere in Eastern Europe that uh, threaten 
Russia's security or appear to threaten Russia's security. Uh, Moscow is not only worried about the, the membership issue, it's worried about the buildup of NATO forces throughout Eastern Europe. And I think some assurances have to be given with regard to that set of issues, or we're going to have reoccurring crises. This would just be the, the latest in a series. Ted, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, um, the ideological undergirding of the arguments for, you know, standing with Ukraine against Russia and taking a tough position against Vladimir Putin. You know, I hear this and I know Dan and yourself have seen this in the headlines and in op-ed pieces about the new authoritarianism uh, roiling it, uh, across Europe. Uh, often we hear Vladimir Putin mentioned, Viktor Orban and others. And there is this sense that if you support a uh, liberal international order, if you support democracy, uh, if you oppose authoritarianism in Europe, then you need to, to throw in on this fight. And they've, you know, those who are advocating this have attached this to democracy promotion and the, the need to preserve democracy. Can you talk a little bit about democracy promotion and how that, um, that pretty much led to the crisis we're in now? And I'm speaking specifically about uh, the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, Victoria Nuland, and all their efforts to um, overturn the government in 2014. And the United States uh, political leadership, I think, deserves some kind of an award for hypocrisy when it uh, rails against interference in the internal political affairs of other countries. Um, the U.S. has done that for decades, whenever convenient. The liberal international order seems to uh, be in effect only when it's convenient for the United States and its allies. Uh, and in the case of Ukraine, that was especially egregious. Um, Russia had tolerated a pro-Western government that had been in power from 2004 to 2010. Wasn't happy about it, but it didn't make any uh, overt hostile moves toward it. Then a pro-Russian president was duly elected in what the European Union certified was a fair and free election. But the United States and some of its European allies did not like the policies pursued by that government. And openly supported demonstrators trying to unseat that elected government uh, more than a year before the end of the president's term. Those demonstrators with U.S. and European aid ultimately succeeded. That was regarded as an intolerable provocation by Moscow. Russia's response immediately was to seize the strategic area of Crimea, where Russia has uh, one of its most crucial military bases, the naval base at Sevastopol. So Washington's attempt to promote democracy, at least that was the cover story, ended up uh, intensifying the crisis. There's no evidence at all that Putin would have moved to seize Crimea if the U.S. and its allies had not been meddling in Ukraine and managed to overthrow the pro-Russian president. 
So Washington brought this on itself. And yet, of course, it's always the other side's fault entirely. I've yet to see anyone in the media, anyone in officialdom, admit that maybe some of the actions taken by the United States over the last uh, few decades toward Russia have been needlessly provocative. Maybe the United States bears a share of the blame for the onset of a new Cold War. No, apparently everything the U.S. and its allies do is defensive and justified. Oh, and I don't know how you feel about this, but what do you, what do you make of this new project in Washington that uh, finds that we need to oppose, actively oppose um, authoritarianism, global authoritarianism in the world? You know, as a classical liberal myself, I chafe at any idea or any, um, you know, specter of authoritarianism, whether it's here or abroad. But I'm a little skeptical of, you know, neoconservatives, you know, making a common cause with liberal Democrats on this new, you know, mission to challenge authoritarianism, i.e. national conservative types, you know, nationalists like Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin abroad. And I see it almost as another effort to, you know, uh, promote American hegemony and to meddle around militarily in the rest of the world. But I don't, what do you make of it all? Well, the U.S. commitment to freedom and democracy around the world has always been terribly selective. Um, that was true during the Cold War when you had quite a few members of the so-called free world who were anything but free. They were simply pro-U.S. authoritarian regimes as opposed to anti-U.S. authoritarian regimes. And to some extent, that, that still applies. I haven't seen the U.S. get outraged at the authoritarianism of the uh, Saudi Arabian government or the Egyptian government. Egypt is now a favorite U.S. client in the Middle East. And that is about as nasty an authoritarian regime as one can find. But somehow, when it suits Washington's purposes, we have this strong, strong commitment to democracy, and we have to promote it and defend it. Ironically, of course, Ukraine is... uh, not exactly a model democracy, and I'm kind of understating things there. It has uh, more than a few uh, nasty authoritarian tendencies, and those tendencies are getting worse. Even Freedom House, which uh, I think is fairly generous toward pro-U.S. governments uh, as a rule, has rated Ukraine today just partly free and with a rating that has been declining over the last several years. And the newest uh, uh, rating that will be out next year, I think, will confirm an even greater decline, given the um, measures that the current government is taking against political opponents. Uh, the regime is even talking about putting the uh, Mr. Zelensky's predecessor, who was involved in the 2014 Maiden Revolution, supposedly one of the good guys. And they're contemplating putting him on trial for treason. <laughs> so this is this is a regime that is not exactly the poster child for democracies that the U.S. ought to be supporting. 
Right, but why, widely ignored by the mainstream media because it doesn't fit the narrative of well, the day. So many things are ignored by the mainstream <laughs> media because it doesn't fit right. the narrative. So we're, we're out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance um, to just talk a second about uh, your, you have a new book coming out, An Unreliable Watchdog, the News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy, all the things that we've been talking about in the last 20 minutes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when that book comes out and where we can find it? Well, it's already listed on Amazon Excellent. Uh, as a forthcoming book. The official publication date is June 1st. And uh, I'm right in the middle of the pleasurable stage of uh, viewing page proofs, which uh, is, I think, a little less uh, painful than having uh, bamboo shoots shoved <laughs> under your fingernails, but only slightly. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a book that takes a comprehensive look at how the news media have uh, promoted often very unwise, typically very hawkish U.S. policies over the decades. And that this situation, if anything, is in a stage now where it's getting worse again. So I think people in this country have to be very vigilant. They have to be skeptical about what they're reading and hearing in the news media. And remember that we've been down this road many times before, Remember Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, for example. Remember the imminent U.S. victory in Vietnam in 1968, just before the Tet Offensive blew that narrative out of the yeah. water. This is a longstanding problem. Well, I'm so glad that you're writing about it. It's so important, uh, not obviously for, for right now, but looking back and learning lessons, which we never seem to do, as a country, is the media's role and its complicity in uh, the, the wars, the run-up to the wars is so uh, important, or at least learning about it is so important. So thank you, and we look forward to having you back on the show to talk about it when it comes out, and congratulations as well. Thank you very much, indeed. I'd love to come back and talk about it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Ted. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.